Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a composer, producer, member of the Zulu Exchange from Chicago, Julian Daves Mood. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have Julian Davis Reed with us from the Juju Exchange. Thank you for joining us, man. Hey, man. Great to be here. And I know that theme is very simple. I still screwed it up, believe it or not, earlier. So <laughs> we're all learning. Tell the people sure. about yourself and then let's get into this because your catalog is just unique. Man, thank you. Man, I'm, so I'm out of Chicago. The band's out of Chicago. We are childhood friends. Nico Segal and I went to high school in the same jazz band at Whitney Young. And then my brother, Novazai, came along later, also went to Wendy Young, also in the jazz band. And we got connected and were swirling things around in the 20, late 20, 2000s. Wow. And then we ended up, Nico and I, we went different paths. I went to university um, and he went on the road touring and we stayed connected, though. And when I got married, came back together. And he played, actually, in the wedding, played a song that I had written for Carmen. And then afterwards, he was like, man, let's link and let's keep making music. And so we got back together and started doing tunes that I thought might have just been for posterity's sake. But there are the plans. And we ended up starting the band, the Juju Exchange. My bro, Nova's I got involved. And we're here to tell the tale five years later. A couple records in and, and excited for more. Yeah, and you guys are doing really well on Spotify and some of the other streaming forums. And I yeah, actually hear you guys on the lo-fi channels. when they're... So you guys have a good mixture of... Uh, you got a broader range of audience than, I guess, most people. But I'm sure. just curious on doing things. Where did you go to university? I went to Yale uh, for undergrad. Oh. Yeah. An Ivy League. Okay, another <laughs> one. <laughs> and where did you go for grad then? And then I went to Emory University. I went to actually seminary school, ministry school at Emory and was playing gospel, grew up playing gospel too, uh, gospel jazz in Atlanta. Then Chicago afterwards, my wife and I. Okay, wait, so what did you major undergrad in? My undergrad was in philosophy. Okay. And you met your wife during undergrad? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. I'm just, the fact that she helped get this band together, I'm just curious on a lot of background Ain't that stuff. something? Yeah, <laughs> I know. And now she's a doctor. So, you know, funny, mm. funny that we, so we met, she was a singer in undergrad. We met at church because I was playing for church and, and the music director, she came wanting to sing. So that's how we connected. And then later on, I wrote this song for her inspired by our relationship. And that's what Nico played. And yeah, so it's just amazing how personal life meets Chicago, meets music, meets you all now. Because as a result of all these currents coming together, we're making these dope tracks that we're excited to have you listen to. And what type of doctor is she? She's a physician. She's going to be a pediatrician right now. She's a resident pediatrician here in Chicago. Okay. Helping out the littles. That's cool, man. Yeah, man. (laughs) 
And you guys coming from Chicago, at least recently, the main big acts from Chicago, at least you growing up, tend to be the rappers right now. That's I right. Say it like that. No, so. but we're, but we're, I mean, no, you're right. But we're connected to that too. And so part of what's so cool about the Juju Exchange is that it really speaking to this word exchange. It gets at the interplay of different lineages in Chicago. You know, it's got this rich history of so much that was either birthed here or really took root here in a unique way. Blues took a unique form here. Gospel really took off from here. Jazz has a long storied history here. Cats local to the scene, AACM, Von Freeman, and then also newer cats like Joel Ross or Marquise Hill. I mean, these are the homies of, of the band. So this, these are movements that are happening in jazz. And then, of course, like you were saying, rap, chance, Vic, Mensa. Kanye. Yeah, Lil Durk, Kanye, Twister, Lupe. I mean, so the list goes on. But in particular, what we get in is with Chance in particular because Nico continues to collaborate a lot with him. And so that's been a part of our world. And yet what we see, because we're born and bred Chicago, we see how these lineages come together and how these, these worlds play off each other. And a track like Jubilee of ours really speaks to that connection of all That's of these great track and then the tempo change is different wasn't expecting that in the song but dude. bad thank you <laughs> bad thanks yeah i i love that track and i love how that brings together footwork which is a chicago dance form with gospel praise music the and then also it brings together, of course, jazz, too, because we're soloing and we got the changes and all that. And so to really see these three sit together speaks to Chicago in such a such a unique way. Well said. So <laughs> what made you guys actually focus more on this style, though? Was it just mm-hmm. because Nico was playing with Chance? And this is more of a Chance's, I say, older style? That's a good question, man. I, there was partially that. Partially, it was Nico really thinking about what is a song? What does it mean to make a song? And Nico does such a great job of thinking about what pops for somebody in a live setting versus what pops for somebody on a record. And those aren't always the same. And yet, often in jazz, and these are including, to be fair, records that I've grown up on and love and adore, a lot of those records were performances that are just taped. So we can go throughout all the annals, you know, you name it. Whoever we listen to has had some live recording that we probably referenced, that we learned solos from, that we know the changes to in that version versus the recorded version, etc. But because Nico was also getting hip to the pop world through chance and the hip hop world, he was also therefore thinking about what is uniquely possible in a studio setting that's not possible in a live setting. And so the ethos for our band then emerged to blend these elements of acoustic performance and digital production. And that's why you get this jazz electronic fusion of a sort that's happening on our records that then can sound different from how we may expand things and go into rabbit holes in a live show. So that's where that 
sound was coming from. And it's been really exciting because it allows us on a project like Exchange, our first record, to have songs as diverse as We Good, which has got the hip hop drums and it's got some of an R&B vibe and has a Chicago local on there, Jamila Woods. So there's that track, right, which is track three. But then by the time you get to track seven, you have this song Patience, which is a trio song and sounds like, as Downbeats put it, sounds like it was lifted out of some Bill Evans secret sessions. I assure you it was not. But it comes just out of this very straightforward, earnest, acoustic feeling that we have, too. And so the contrast between We Good and Patience really speaks to the range of what it is that's in us and therefore what it is that we're trying to give. And random question on that, because this is more for the younger people listening. So your first album, you actually were able to get into Downbeat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, How did you pull that off? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Downbeat, uh, they were interested. And, you know, Downbeat's trying to listen to different sounds. And I forget exactly the connect we had. But we sent it to them and it ended up being one of the editor's picks. So we had a downbeat editor's pick feature. And then also it was on Noisy and Vice, DJ Booth. So, you know, a wide array of spaces we're listening. But I think that also speaks to the kind of listenership we're trying to have, where we want to have cats who are deep in the world, who are coming up learning the train solos and learning the McCoy intros. Right. But then also cats who are hip hop heads who may have never heard of Kind of Blue, who don't know that it's Miles playing with Tribe Called Quest or whatever the case is. But they know we got the jazz. Right. And they know all the hip hop of now. And yet they're interested in these musical elements that come from instruments present in music like chances. So and then, of course, we also have older cats who listen and are interested. And so it's it's just interesting having this diverse array of audiences present for us. Okay, so the people who don't know, like, a lot of stuff is sampled from jazz and all that stuff. Exactly. What do you think of that? Man, I think that that's one of the best kept secrets and sadly kept secrets of hip-hop. Now, cats who know their homework or do their homework and know their history know that Dilla or tribe or whomever would they were deep in the bag kendrick's a great current day example of this where he really just surfaces and makes it very clear that the lineage of hip-hop is deeply connected to the lineage of jazz and so the relationship he has to terrace martin and kamasi glasper and them it's not a surprise to me at all because he's aware of the way that these streams come together into the same pool but for those who don't know i just encourage you to do the sample homework that you know cats do for other tunes and when you hear a lick see it where it comes from they don't, uh, they don't even do that with the Kanye song so I can't really give you that you said what? they don't even do that with the oh, no. Kanye songs like <laughs> through the wire I was like you really can't hear oh yeah, man through the fire it's pretty much the same yeah just raised it up an octave or two and yeah <laughs> That's exactly. That's a good point. Well, uh, I'll still make the I'll still make the the plea here to to listen and and even if you don't go and check out, for instance, Amajamal, go listen. If you haven't ever listened to the record The Awakening, yo, and you know hip hop currently, please go listen to that record and you will hear so much of modern hip hop. Amajamal is one of the most, if not the most, sampled jazz musician. Um, his stuff just lands so that's well. That's how he makes so, most of his money, sadly. Uh, uh, I wow. feel jazz. <laughs> wow, man, that's deep. Uh, not surprising. 
but but yeah, he's a businessman too. So so yeah, definitely go check out Jamal. Uh, but even if you don't, even if you don't want to do it, just like Leander, you were saying about <laughs> through the wire and through the fire, even if you don't want to do that work, as you listen to music that gets you, my encouragement to you is to just think about what is happening here in the tones, in the loops. Sometimes it's just a couple things put together on Fruity Loops, sure. But other times it's coming from really deep engagement with a tradition. And so just listen and realize that this music isn't coming from nowhere. It's not in a vacuum. And at least appreciate that. Because that way, when you do hear jazz in a steakhouse or whatever, don't you can't really just write that off as wallpaper music, even if it is in the background. Because realize that what those cats are playing is oftentimes at the center of some of your favorite music. Okay, elsewhere. since we're on rap and you mentioned some other stuff, so Fruit Loops, uh, Fruity Loops, or whatever yeah, that sample yeah. thing is. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that did more harm than music? Because oh. I personally believe rap did a lot of hard harm to music. Just because they rely on sampling, most of the time it's not original beats they're rapping over. And what's it called on top of that? They care more about their lyrics. So they don't learn how to play the instrument. Ah, so I have gone through a journey on this front, and I hear you on that, where instruments aren't, musical instruments as we've known them aren't being played. Uh, oftentimes the beats have only a few elements or the samples come from somebody else and they don't always get credit. So definitely hear that. However, where I've, ch where I've grown is realizing and being a producer myself alongside an acoustic player realizing the complexity and depth of production and what it and how hard it is to make stuff sound good on Pro Tools, which is what I use, or Ableton, which is what Nova's Eye uses, or even Fruity Loops. Uh, and so not all producers are made equal. And what I also started to realize, the deeper I got into production, I started to see that this was connected to the other reasons hip-hop came about in the first place. Hip-hop came about in part because people in the 70s in South Bronx were trying to express their pain around being left behind as America moved away from industrialization. So factories start to close. The civil rights leaders are assassinated. Cats are on, literally, I mean, houses are on fire. Tons of arson is happening. South Bronx back then and now remains a very blighted area. So people, especially brothers, they're processing their pain. Well, what's also happening in the decades then to come is that you start losing music programs in school. So schools where people, I mean, Train, Parker and them, those cats were coming up and they were playing instruments that were being provided for them in school. They weren't necessarily allowed to join the white orchestras or ensembles, but they were able to get access to instruments. And when I look at a lot of black kids today, the cats who end up going into production, they don't have access to instruments or instruments are not present in the home. They're not made desirable. But what is desirable is a sampler, is an MPC. So I can't afford lessons to go learn how to play tuba or go learn how to play clarinet. But I can get this MPC and start fiddling around with things. And so it's, you know, the change in music is always connected to the change in economics and change in politics. And so I, we're seeing that reflected also in the music, what's happening and gutting our music programs. Okay, that was a mouthful, more than I was expecting. So <laughs> how would you personally fix that problem? Because I don't think the city schools, at least in New York, I don't know about Chicago, have Same the funds yeah, to actually true. bring in, I don't know, uh, Eastman music grads true, right, exactly. <laughs> to go teach 
these sure, kids how man. to play. Exactly. No, exactly. So, yeah, our part of our vision and mission as a band is to bring, kind of like what you were asking me earlier about jazz samples for hip-hop, bring these worlds together and help people see what otherwise can be rendered invisible. So for cats who only think Fruity Loops beats because that's all that they hear, showing them that, one, that's not the case, that some of these producers have deep histories in, like I was saying, Dilla and whatnot, have deep histories studying Jamal and, and chopping it up. Ninth Wonder, these cats are just heavy thinkers, Mad Lib, heavy uh, students of the game, right? So then showing kids that this is possible with music. So we've done some lectures on this. Uh, we actually did one for the Jazz Institute of Chicago where we talked and demonstrated for educators how they can bring sampling with it, live instruments, because this is a jazz camp, bring sampling with live instruments to their students. We also did a talk at Apple here in town, and we did that too. We did a little workshop where people got iPads and then they got to chop up bits and pieces of a song, and, but we also were playing for them live. And so I think our the role that we're trying to do is expose, take away the illusion that it's all just computers um, and then also show them that instruments are interesting. So <laughs> that's part of what's happening okay. at our shows. You know? So Mike, take on that. It's easier and less time consuming for a person to make a fruit loop beat or to mm. chop up and sample versus actually learning an instrument. Sure. So if it's a reed instrument, how many years does it take just to get the mouth control down? Yeah, good point. Versus actually, so I don't know if that's going to work. I like the idea. But if I'm on the get rich quick idea of yeah. mindset and, you know, trap music tends to be Fruit Loops, Fruity Loops or whatever they call the program. I don't really know. I don't sure. use it. I don't see them actually going to that route. And then, you know, some rappers, when they're live, they actually try to bring a band in. Mm -hmm. It don't work. Yeah. 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 Take it. I like rap. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, well. There, I think, will always be a remnant of folk who want to learn instruments and, if they have access, will want to do it. And the reality is instruments have constantly changed. I mean, since the beginning of jazz, instrumentation has changed. Um, you didn't have this, these elaborate drum kits at the beginning. You didn't have upright bass at a lot of the beginning, you know, especially the Dixieland stuff. A lot of that stuff was just brass band, which still exists, obviously. But a lot of the instruments, the clarinet, you know, that used to be really at the foreground. And that was the technology, right? I think that's also an important thing to say here, which is that musical instruments, while we may see them as not tech because they're not digital, they're not electronic, like a piano is, um, they still are pieces of technology. They're helping a human achieve some end. That's at bottom what tech is. And so digital tech, electronic tech that we get later with synthesizers and whatnot, and now Pro Tools and all this, those are forms of tech that can be seen as instruments, but shouldn't be seen as not connected to these acoustic instruments. So my hope is that we can also then learn that history, you know, about how instruments change, how they continue to change, and then also see the pushback that people have. And, you know, there was not, everybody wasn't all that happy about saxes when they first came and, you know, so on and so forth. So well said. it's always happening. Okay, I give you that. Uh, so 
Before I forget to ask, what instruments do each of you play? So I play the piano mm -hmm. and keyboards principally. And mm -hmm. I also produce. We all produce. Novazai plays the drum kit along with production. And he also invented an instrument called Nova Portals has a patent for it and so it's these three pods that sit around his drums that he doesn't have to touch in order to make sound so they read based on sensors his motions his movements and he took pre-existing tech uh, and built it such that now it can exist in these pods and these pods talk to one another they also can talk to his drum kit and we can talk to other instruments too so we're working on incorporating that more and more fully into the set but any of our stuff online our live shows you'll see the portals there and then nico Segal plays trumpet alongside production and also plays trumpet with horn uh, sorry trumpet with um <laughs> plays all kinds of trumpet flugel b flat piccolo now he was just showing me he got a piccolo sounded great on it uh and then other kinds of woodwinds from around the americas so when you're mainly performing it's just the three of you mm-hmm okay sometimes we have bass and sax when we bring in other cats but a lot of our work is as a trio understood and i just gotta ask is nova like an engineering student or something yeah so he did performing arts technology at university of michigan and jazz studies there so he did dual degree and built that instrument in his pat or pat program alongside, you know, just learning how to tip on kit. Nice. <laughs> really smart group, I must say. Okay. <laughs> so coming from, at least in your case, the Ivy League world, and then mm -hmm. actually performing as an artist, what is something they do wrong? Whoa. <laughs> that's a really interesting question. <laughs> wow, that's really interesting. Uh, I was just reading yesterday about how people who don't plan a lot typically end up being reactive more than proactive. And I don't know if this is wrong, but it is a big difference. I've noticed a lot of cats that I went to, that I went to school with, including me, are big planners. And you typically don't get to a school like Yale, if you don't know how to work a system, if you don't really understand structure and don't really understand how to navigate it, it's just not going to work. Uh, you may not necessarily be type A, but you know how to work the system. So that is a common denominator. And I would say maybe the common denominator for everybody at Yale is that they knew how to work a system. Um, my time in the arts, where people come with various relationships to institution, and oftentimes chose not to go to institutions that are so much about structure, particularly the Yales. I've noticed a big difference in terms of how people respond. Because when I plan as much as I do, it allows me to kind of think systematically about the business side or even about the creation side. And that's just not always a shared impulse by other cats I work with. So. And it's being an interesting place for the meeting of minds and, and trying to the give and take from different worlds. But I'm one thing I'm adamant about pushing back against that sometimes I see artists fall into is feeling like we can't plan or we're doomed to be 
disorganized or we're doomed to not understand finance or something because we're creative. And that's just the way that artists get fleeced. It's a way that artists have bad mental health. It's a way that artists end up in all kinds of exploited positions vis-a-vis the powers that be, the Spotify's or record labels or whomever, it doesn't matter, um, managers. If we don't understand how to to reason and rationalize. So that's something we talk a lot about on our team. And I'm so thankful to be working with great managers who are helping us organize and help us lean into the gifts of organization um, and think as people who can really own a label. And in the world of independent music, which is the world where so many artists are now headed because of the Patreons, which is one we have, uh, because of just direct access to the Spotify's through DistroKid or Ditto or whatever, because of the way playlists are working, there's so much more that's decentralized that allows people to get their foot in the door just on their own. But but that the good side of that is that you can then have your own footprint on your masters, etc. But the downside is that if you're not really tight on your finances, if you're not really tight on strategy, you can really either get lost in the sauce or get taken advantage of. So one thing I try to bring from my background, I did finance before I came into ministry, before I came into music full time, um, is to try to think with the numbers as much as I think with the sound and encourage that for anybody else too. Just, just know your numbers. Outstanding point. Before I forget to ask, what's your Patreon? So people know ah, it. Thank you. Yeah, the Juju Exchange. So patreon.com slash the Juju Exchange. Okay. We'd love to to have you join our network, join our exchange village, as we call it. Mm -hmm. And another thing you pointed out, which is sadly true, Spotify and those streaming service really pulled a quick one over the record labels. Mm. (laughs) That's a good point. So, yeah, it's a great, man, that's a great point that you said. It's really a give and take because, you know, on one hand, the record labels used to have all the power, you know, the music critics, you had to go listen to them to figure out who should I listen to because there are only so many places music was coming out, only so many places you could go see it, and time was precious. So music critics held a different role back in the day, and record labels were the ones that had the keys to the studio, and you couldn't record often without going through them. So both of those have really been unseated in terms of that kind of power by streaming services. So that's a real plus, right? Because now people can just go direct, and with the advent and growth of home recording cast them just go do what they want at the crib when they want mm-hmm. and so you get rec- records coming out of all kinds of people's basements i mean shoot billy eilish and phineas they swept the grammys with a, a record back in the day that they recorded in uh one of their bedrooms right at their crib so the world is changing and expectations are changing but the downside as you were just maybe alluding to is that streaming services also then make it harder to get money really paid for or sorry uh money paid to the artists and so it's it's a give and take so but I, but i'm very cautious to just kind of jettison or poo-poo that because i see the salutary benefits of having access to such a big world because it allows so many artists us included to get in the door get in a playlist thankfully even have our name at the top of playlists like we were um, for all new jazz, for our new song, Walk Cycle, that just dropped. So, so on and so forth. You know, it's a give and take, but I, all in all, I'm thankful. And the reality is, no matter the era, if you're not persistent and if you're not creative and nimble, you're out to lunch. Correct. Now, the thing about it, why I say it was a lose, but yet it's also a win, is because I have four services. 
I pay mm. roughly 50 a month. Do you know how much I used to spend on albums every month before mm. I submitted to it? But then you're right, I have a broader access, more access to all these other groups, more than I could ever listen to. Sure, good point. But the truth is, I listen to your whole album and you might get 10 cents from it. <laughs> exactly. That's the loss of it. <laughs> exactly. Man, there's this super funny Instagram meme from Jazz Memes um, a couple days ago where there is this super rich studio or super expensive studio, 100K worth of gear in there. And the meme was something like, me going in to finish my tunes in a 100K studio, knowing I'm going to get 0.003 yeah. cents a stream. And it was this little black kid just kind of doing this random little dance. It was so funny, but it was also so perceptive because that's this irony, right? If the music's not good and oftentimes needs to come through 100K worth of mixing board gear and all this, right? If it's not coming out of stuff like that, then people aren't going to pay the 0.003 cents to you to listen to a tune, which is just so staggering. Um, so yeah, there's just a huge And that's the problem I have with just a lot of the jazz in general Because then they want to record it live They want to be in an ISO booth studio And then they want it to be live taped six times And don't get me wrong, live tape tends to be cheaper But the studio mm -hmm. layout Ugh <laughs> So now you're looking at, like you said It would be nice to say it's a 10 grand That's a low-end jazz bell. Sure, sure, Very low You do that and then at the time you promote it and you mix it and you master it, you do the yep. cover design and we're not even saying you're printing them. We're just saying you're putting it online. So, okay. Do the math. Yeah. And that's why, unfortunately, my favorite magazines of jazz just get smaller, 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 mm. smaller. Like, I don't see Sony putting out albums like that anymore. Mm. And when they do, they ain't selling like they did in the, we're not going to say the 80s or the 90s. Just, Early 2000s. Because it's unfair to say 80s or 90s. Everything practically went platinum that they pushed out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, man. I mean, that's... You always have to do... I know you have to do the art for the love of it. And I'm reminded of that almost daily. <laughs> just based on how music is or is not received. Just based on how difficult it can be to make money off of it. Um, but then I also am trying to think with the band always about how can we really respond to the present needs of our fans. So needs include being in person, playing shows, which people still do tons of patronizing of. But then other needs like getting these intimate connections like through Patreon and doing crowdsourcing work that way. I mean, those are new avenues for making bread and for supporting work, and I'm so thankful for our subscribers who end up helping make tunes like Walk Cycle happen by just the that slow, consistent giving. And, you know, I've been doing it. We've had patrons now for almost two years. And so we talk to them, they talk to us, and just that back and forth really helps. And so I'm thankful for what's possible now in that regard. But, yeah, it's tough. And that's also a reason why the regular label also is a give and take. Because on one hand, they end up owning a lot of the masters. But on the other hand, if they believe in you and they're willing to put money behind you and 
thus take on that debt themselves and that financial risk, you end up with bread that you may not otherwise in terms of advances or getting access to studio time. So I can see it going other ways. We've gone the independent route, very committed to trying to own our masters because we know that's where a lot of the money is and figure out other ways. We're getting Patreon coming out of our own pockets to finance the projects. That's a way to also then to make it happen. Okay. So what is something people seem to misunderstand about the music world? And you can even give me it because, you know, you have a professional doctor you're living with versus sure. <laughs> how does she see it versus you? Like the reality sure. versus the... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think one general misunderstanding from people is that the music world isn't a job. Man, I, I had a gig once. Oh, this happens all the time. But I just remember this one gig in particular. We were in the green room getting ready to go out. It was a big gig too, right? And people just kept coming in the room. And it was cool. People I wanted to see. But I'll never forget Nico at some point saying, you would never see this in another job. If a lawyer was preparing to go into court to argue, you... You couldn't just roll up and be like, yo, what's up, man? How you doing, man? Man, what's what's going on? Let's go play ball. You know, whatever. Uh, later. In like, the green room? You would understand. They did this? No, no, no. No, no. No, I'm saying, like, people would come and talk Before and just hang. Like, show. that's very common. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's very common. Just make sure. Very, very common. Yeah, yeah. For musicians to just entertain fans or homies, family even, and just kind of hang like it's a hang. And then the show is this casual transition that you make. And Nico was saying, in other professions, you just don't have that. I just can't roll up on my wife at the hospital and just ask to hang with her because I feel like it, right? It just wouldn't work. Um, and yet in music, something about either the way it's presented or maybe the fact that we use the word even play to talk about our work, um, and I think that that might be the only job where that happens. I don't know. No, there's but, some sports, depending on where you oh, are. Oh, fair, fair. Yeah, fair enough. Right. Sports. Sports, too. Right. Those players literally play for work. Right. So sports and music. Uh, but in these fields, but particularly, I think, in music, it cannot seem like a real job to a lot of people. So oftentimes I get asked, not, not by Carmen. My wife is amazing with this and really reveres and respects what I do. Um, but other cats will be like, yeah, so what's your real job? What, what really do you do? And, um, you know, and I, so I do happen to <laughs> do other things. I lead these contemplative retreats called Notes of Rest. Um, and so I do other, I do other jobs. But for some people, and even if I didn't do this, regardless of other jobs, music is a job when you're playing at a certain level and you're basing your livelihood on it. And I think that's one of the big, that's one of the big things. And that sadly is not only coming from people who don't play or who aren't in the industry at all. I think that's also a misunderstanding within the industry and just how musicians can kind of get tossed to and fro by record labels, albums get shelved or whatever else. And it can be very casual or very here and there. And yet these are people's livelihoods. 
So the fact that, for instance, a lot of record labels don't classify artists as employees, even though they're working for them. Why? Because they ain't got to give them health benefits if they're not employees. So you have all this money coming from artists. And yet the way that they're on your line items, on your spreadsheets, makes it such that you actually aren't responsible to them to take care of their health, even though they are literally putting their lives on the line in terms of touring, mental health, in terms of how much time they need to give to projects that you want them to do, flying around the world, time away from their families, so on and so forth. And yet they don't see actually a dime in terms of dental or medical, let alone mental. Well, the argument uh, on that would be yeah. like they have a 1090 and they could afford to pay it on their own. That's the argument. Yes, that's the argument. <laughs> that, that's, I agree that's, with you. The, that's the argument. Yeah, that's the argument. So, so yeah, those, I think I would just say that's the, the point. Music is a job and deserves respect as such and also treatment and care as such. Okay, that is fair. So, where would you think jazz in general will be in 10 years? I think the world is going to become increasingly diverse. We're just seeing people like myself and, or like the band, the Juju Exchange. We're just seeing the effects now of the streaming age. And I say just because I'm 31. So that means there was a time when the internet didn't exist for me to use. That also means I was around a long time before streaming services. Like we were just talking about Leander, you know, we, I still have a bunch of CDs, you know, mm-hmm. um, and the vinyls making a comeback and all that. But still, a lot of people are. I don't most, think it's really coming. You get a comeback. Yeah, it's, yeah, you're right. And it's not. And not it's in a collectibles way. thing now. It's an audiophile thing yeah. for sure. But yeah, so the main thing is people are formed by streaming. And so the boxes that people had music in are now just being reconfigured. I'm not saying thrown out because every time people come up with innovation, you have to redefine categories. And so now we have new categories and the categories that were old will no longer work. But that means we'll just keep innovating on them. So in 10 years, jazz will have even more hyphens and subcategories as people come up with new ways of thinking through it. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a whole subgroup or subgenre called rap jazz, you know, in 10 years where what we see now is just a eccentric part of either the jazz world or the hip hop world where jazz cats are rapping or rappers are using jazz. That'll just, I wouldn't be surprised if that just ended up becoming more of a uh, move. I'm also curious about how in 10 years, you know, what will we, what will we care about in terms of technical prowess? The reason I'm saying that is, I don't know when this shift really happened, but somewhere in the last century, music started and society started in America, started to care less about technical expertise and more about experience. And so you see this now with cats like Trump coming to office who ain't no political expert, but people didn't care. They cared because he gave them an experience, either an experience of being in, you know, in their camp or he was entertaining or whatever. I'm not even trying to get into that. The point is, though, that he didn't need to be an expert and, in fact, was prized because he wasn't an expert in politics to then get the office. He is 
a symbol of a bigger move that's happened. Now, where this gets interesting is in jazz and classical, because these two art forms are art forms that still really, really prize being technically hip, yes. right? I mean, cats can play. You listen to any of the records that are coming out now, and the main, the um, straight ahead records, all kinds of hits. I mean, James Francis, his stuff, I got to listen to a thousand times, you know, to kind of figure out the time signature and where they're going just because it's so technically advanced. But as American society becomes less and less interested in just having things that are technical for the sake thereof and becoming more and more invested in experience, what will that mean for the music? I'm sure there'll always be a remnant of folk who will want to play technically proficiently as much as humanly possible. And I'm sure there'll always be some audience for that. But as you've been hinting at, Leander, and, and talking about sales, where will the financial interest be on that front versus creating other kinds of music that still hold to elements of the genre that are getting more of the experience people have in the moment with the music? And that might will probably be connected to how people manipulate VR and augmented reality, how people use crypto and NFTs and just the experience they can create there. Um, and so I see that. I guess that's connected to my last point, which is I see jazz because it's often been more about technical connection with an audience. I think because of where the money's going in market and interest, there's going to be an increased desire for artists to have their humanity really tracked by their audience. So right now, you can still even have a lot of cats that you don't really know that much about. They don't necessarily post a lot on Insta. They're not big figures uh, and on Twitter at all. But they make killing tunes and they can shed and whatever, right? And that's what we see. But with socials and the advent of all these new ways of analyzing people's lives and really connecting with them and again, having this experience with the person. Now, if you just are a cat, who's not necessarily present in these other ways of showing what you ate for breakfast or how you feel about the playoffs or whatever, it can be harder for people to really justify spending their money on you versus spending their money on somebody else with whom they do have that connection. Correct. I agree on that. And so I just, I'm wondering. There's some artists that I don't want to say, but it's like you're really popular online and then I listen to your stuff and I'm like, How? Ah, <laughs> uh, that's funny. So yeah, so I think there again, there'll always be audiophiles who are like, I don't care what you have to say, I don't care the color of your chihuahua's hair. I care about how well you can play these lines and how many times you can key change and still keep it together, right? There are people who always care about that, sure. But I suspect a lot of people are going to become more and more interested in the worlds you blend and how you connect to my world. So how would the average person capitalize on that? If they are, like you said, the key signature chaining, changing expert. Oh. Hmm. I'm not trying to give any names, but that guy that literally writes a song that goes from 7-8 to 4-4 four, four to 3 eighth to whatever yeah <laughs> how is he gonna capitalize off the experience when there's some people what he's his expertise is watch me master this instrument right right and i think there's always going to be that 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 guild is probably going to get smaller and smaller um but people will still 
be really impressed by that sound. And people can hear excellence regardless of whether they're trained. The extent to which people can follow that or want to follow that, well, that's different than just being able to hear and respect it. So I think those cats, just they're going to, they're those cats who move from 7 8 to 3 4 to 4 4. They're being driven by this deep sense of internal desire to play at a certain level. And it reminds me of Eric Dolphy playing to the birds outside, you know, and he was just shedding that way. Or Train or Parker when they had those years on end where they were practicing 15 hours a day. In the case of Parker, I believe it was. I mean, that wasn't for commercial success. Um, that was because there was this insatiable desire to grow and to express and to play. So I think there'll always be that. And if that's your bag, then just make sure you calibrate your expectations. And I mean, I'm, I'm no record label <laughs> exec, so I don't, I'm not saying what you're going to do in the market, but just, we can look, you know, jazz on the whole tends to not sell that much. And even uh, in jazz festivals, they don't really seem to be the attraction. Yo, man, okay. that's a great point, man. I just went to one of the biggest ones, okay? I'm not going to say which one. All I'm going to say is in the South. Sure, you get sure. what I mean. <laughs> I get what you mean. And yes, sir. there was a traditional jazz tent, a blues tent, a jazz tent. Uh, I want to say a modern jazz stage. That's wow. right, stage. Wow. And then there was a world stage, a folk stage, and a main stage. Now, how many jazz acts do you think were on the main stage? 50%? One. No way. One. And this was a whole weekend. Wow. Guess which one had the smallest group? The jazz tent? Traditional jazz, then jazz. And this is a jazz festival. And no, wow. I'm not knocking this jazz festival. Sure. They, they did great. They got everyone in. Sure. They gave the jazz people what they wanted, but they also sure. made sure the people who didn't know if they liked jazz had people to listen to. Dang, man. And people vote with their feet. I mean, people vote with their feet. It was feet, clearly yo. people vote with their feet. People vote with their feet. So I think the 7-8s, the seven eight three four cats... If you're content playing in those small tents and playing for those 10 people who want to listen to you, it's kind of like people who go into academia because I'm connected to the university. Yeah, that's good. Too. No, I, I like know, this. I, but I, but I, think of, I think of it similarly where I remember coming across cats who got up every morning so excited to study supremely esoteric, arcane theoretical, uh, med theoretical <laughs> Mediterranean history. And languages, you know, I mean, languages that nobody speaks, languages that are only studied because they're really connected to other languages that people study more, right, but still don't speak. So you're talking degrees removed from like main day relevance. But these cats love this stuff, man. They loved it. And I was really fascinated how these cats would spend whole careers trying to get a job to talk to the 10 other people in the world who really cared about it too. And they would know it, you know, and they would say as much like, yeah, I know this guild comprises maybe five to 10 other cats, but man, this, I love this. And I think that's similarly what's happening in, again, another technical field of the, that kind of musical expression. There'll be 10 other cats who play that way professionally at a high level, you know, who play the seven, eight, seven, three, fours to the 
six eights, whatever. Uh, and maybe you're playing for them, you're playing with them, and you're playing for the audience members who are really interested in just maybe getting lost in that world. I know that's sometimes what happens for me when I can't necessarily figure something out. I just sit back and say, you know what? I'm not even going to try to count. I'm going to just listen. And I love that. Now, will I seek that out all the time? Not necessarily. So again, your tent might be small at these festivals, but if your tent's comprised of the people who are there for that moment, more power to you. I agree. Now, since I mentioned it, and I'm just curious on your take on it, just music festivals in general, do you think jazz ones are going down? Man, that's a great question, bro. That I mean, that's that that you just shared about the festival that shall not be named. Um, <laughs> and it's not the first one, too. Everyone um, probably knows which one I'm talking about. Yeah, right, 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 exactly. Sure. But we can leave it out there for professional courtesy. So there's, And that's not the only one. I've heard about this happening at other festivals where the main attractions are non-jazz acts. I think that... Uh, that puts pressure on multiple groups. It puts pressure one of the musicians to think about what does it mean for me to play festivals? Where am I actually going to be sought and seen? Is it going to be at a festival or am I better off really trying to cut it on a local scene playing here in town? Um, so I think that puts pressure on us to think about what does it mean to be attractive? If festivals got to keep their doors open and they got to fill seats somehow, um, you know, who do they get the sponsorships from? I think that also then, that's con my second point. It puts pressure on the festivals to think about what lineage are they trying to maintain? Are they trying to maintain lineage where the main takeaway is this heritage that goes back to Coltrane in them? Uh, and I, I notice I'm not really saying genre because genre is always being redefined. I like heritage more, lineage more, because there's never going to be another train, and yet train did so much to influence others. There's never going to be another bird or monk or Mary Lou Williams, but these cats did so much to influence other people. So I think in terms of heritage and lineage, when I think about music histories. So is your main job to try to preserve that, or is it try to reward innovation on those themes? But well, that's the yeah. thing about it, because like I said, like you said, they're getting sponsors. I understand they are trying right. to keep the doors open for that right. magical next jazz act that brings us all to the limelight again. That might come. You never know. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Nora Jones was thought of to be that person at one point. Ah, uh, yeah. So I'm not saying it isn't possible, but what do you do at that point where it's like, okay, do you keep it open? And then the artists yeah. that are in there, it's like, do you really want to be one of those guys that jump from festival A, B, C, D, E, you know, like a little caravan train, and that's how you make all your money? Mm. Well, it is a huge way that cats make bread is to play festivals. It Also, it helps get your name out to audiences that may be there for somebody else. So I, I do think that festivals still have great value and, and are very beneficial to musicians um, and because it's just a good meet and greet but yeah this it kind of you know it kind of reminds me of some conversations that people have in diversity settings around the space white folks should have at POC tables um, should they be leading the charge should they be the ones that we ultimately turn to in this case 
should the non-jazz acts be the ones at the jazz festivals getting a lot of the attention and getting the prime time slots and all this i i guess i guess my hands are tied because on one hand i could say no this is the one of the few spaces where we can really gather and have these intimate sacred gatherings where we speak the same language, we don't get to see each other often, so on and so forth, all the exchanging of the sound and of the stories and the fans even who are there for jazz cats, right? They can learn of each other. Mm -hmm. So there's that. But on the other hand, if I'm thinking like a record label exec, the reality is a lot of record labels are able to put a bunch of money into acts that don't really take off financially because they have one or two big acts that I do agree all the heavy that. lifting. It, so if these mainstay, sorry, if these main stage attractions that aren't jazz are doing a lot of the heavy lifting in order to get the sponsors to give the big dollars for this little tents, then No, that's exactly another yeah. way I was thinking of it when I was there. Cause you know, yeah, yeah. I without uh I almost gave away the festival. Uh, what was it say? <laughs> Let's say you use Michael Jackson, okay? Sure, okay. sure, sure. So if Michael Jackson is the main stage act, mm -hmm. and you know people are going to come in to see Michael Jackson, he's the reason why you have a traditional, have a jazz, mm -hmm. have a blues, yeah, have yeah, a yeah. folk stage. Exactly, man. Right. So if he's the engine, yeah, then, you know, don't, as the adage don't bite the hand that feeds you. Correct. So, I, so yeah, I, I can, I can have a really balanced view on these things, and yet still feel justified in mourning that a lot of attention is being given to something that's not necessarily attending to. Now I don't know who you're talking about. Who was the act at the or the other acts there? So I'm not. I can't speak out of turn. After all, we don't even know the name of the festival. But, um, <laughs> but you know, just. I want to be balanced while at the same time being a little sad that this music that I love and all of its complexity and all of its rich history, um, it's just really hard to cut it in America. And I say America on purpose because in Europe or in Asia, particularly Japan and China, very different. Um, and you compare so apples and oranges there. Right. So, so I, so I don't know what it is their, about their billboard charts are just completely different. Mm. So you can't compare it. That. But I'm I'm as a musician, I'm saying, and I talk to a lot of cats. They know that they're going to Europe for long stretches, and they're doing well over there because of how people listen and how people show up. So, I, so what I'm trying to get at is, and for instance, for us, the Juju Exchange, one of the places where we get the most listens is in Tokyo. We never played a show in Tokyo. None of us speak Japanese. None of us are Japanese. And yet it consistently ranks as one of the highest places where our music is streamed. So mm, the world is <laughs> the world is complicated. You can't choose your fans. No, I got you on that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, another great answer from you. So last two few questions, okay? If yeah. you could remove all the barriers and constraints, what type of project would you make? And who will be on it? Ooh, fire question, bro. Man, okay. I want a record with a Juju Exchange where we have on it 
Joel Ross and Thundercat. Ooh, okay. And Vibes bass. Yeah, okay. I'm liking it. Andre 3000 playing bass clarinet. <laughs> and Napalm from Hiatus Coyote playing guitar. Uh, and Herbie Hancock and Stevie Wonder. Battling it out on the keys. Okay. Yeah, battling on keys. Or Herbie's playing uh, melodica or something. And then Stevie, no, Stevie Wonder's really taking a harmonica solo. Okay. Like just, Stevie just did it on Be Water or Be Like Water, something like that. I forget the name of that track from PJ Morton that just came out with him and Nas. So, I mean, he's still around making stuff. No, that, you know, there are no barriers. The hardest one to get out of that group right now is probably going to be Thundercat because, you know, he's Man. hanging out with Bruno right now. Man, that cat is serious, serious. Uh, yes, but that would be, man, to get those cats together uh, would be, do I mean, oh, man, to get Bjork or Georgia and Muldrow playing too. Just, I think, to bring all those worlds together to touch, that's a juju exchange. Um, to get those cats together the test would just be incredible. So, yeah, we are, we dream big too. And the dreams have, big dreams have come our way too, which has been amazing. It's just been a, a real gift from God for me. Um, Derek Hodge came and worked with us and recorded a bunch of stuff on our new music that's coming out in the foreseeable future. I'll just leave it at that. And uh, it was an honor a deep honor to work with such a legend. And he just gave ideas and gave bass and man, just gave himself to us. And so for that week, man, it was just such a special time. Really one of the hallmarks of my music career to date. And then also we're working with Daddy Kev. And so Daddy Kev is the record label. So he owns the distro label Alpha Pup and we are now signed to them. And Alpha Pup uh, distributes records, so it's not a regular record label, but they distribute and get into their channels. And so we released Walk Cycle with Daddy Kev and Alpha Pup. And Daddy Kev also is a, you know, legendary mastering and mixing engineer, having worked on all Thundercat stuff, Fly Low, and worked with Kendrick and so on and so forth. So we're thankful, you know, that we just have these connections and it's just, so the dreams come but then also, we keep dreaming, you know? So, yeah. Thanks for asking. Okay. Well, before we go, we like to give a shout out, show respects to the artists who came before us. So, I'm mm. going to tell you an instrument and two artists. Choose one. Tell us why. Okay? Okay. On trumpet, Winton Marcellus or Chris Porter? Winton Marcellus. And I think just because Marcellus really gets at the classical world and the jazz world and speaks to this deep lineage and really always models for me, always models for me what it means to be articulate about the homework, you know. Okay. Mm -hmm. On saxophone, Stan Gass or Lester Young? Lester Young. Okay. <laughs> the president. Uh, I, okay. No more to say. No more to say. On bass, Dave Holland or Esperanza? Esperanza. She is so imaginative, yo, and just, I mean, Dave is too, to be fair, to be fair, but just the way Esperanza 
has not only broken gender barrier, but also broken genre barrier in, in the way that she blends electronic uh, and and the soul feel and the straight ahead jazz feel and the way she can sing Heaven Down. Man, when I saw her live, blown away. So needless to say, Esperanza. On keys, Keith Jarrett or Sun Ray? Oh, Keith Jarrett. His solo piano work especially is so inspiring to me. And I think solo piano, I'm biased, of course, I play it. But solo piano is one of the great joys of playing this instrument, of getting to create these worlds like Keith did. And I'm sad that I never got to see him before he had his strokes. So I, you know, I'm just probably never going to see him live. But sitting with his records, which are innumerable, <laughs> it just is a huge honor because of what he creates in these worlds unto himself, but then also what he creates in these beautiful trio settings. And of course, his work with Miles. Okay. And on drums. What I always seem to care the most about. Max Roach or Art Blakey? Oh, man. I don't know, man. <laughs> Great question. Oh, um, okay. I'll only say Max. <laughs> I'll only say Max because of this one record that made me cry from him. But I mean, that's that, that one is just so difficult. But yeah, the record that made me cry from him is... Um, we insist Freedom Now Jazz Suite that he did with his then wife, Abby Lincoln. And it is such a powerful concept album. Honestly, now I think about it, one of the deepest concept albums from the greats from, from yesteryear. And he just walks through Black struggle in a heart-wrenching way and also such an uplifting way. Um, and so be it Johannesburg or prayer protest or, um, freedom day, which is what I listened to on Juneteenth. And I encourage you, if you listen to this, check that tune out June, um, freedom day by Max Roach and Abby Lincoln, man, that song, Everything about it. And then Driver Man, that starts the record. Driver Man. I, and 5-4, this blues. My God. I mean, this harrowing, almost grotesque blues that really gets at the grotesque nature of having a overseer So on the plantation. So, yeah, I, it does so much to teach you history, to make you feel history, to make you even feel the present. And, yeah, that, that's the reason... It gets a nod. Max gets the nod, but it's, uh, you know, of course, impossible to pick. And actually, one more. That's, I'm just curious. In Chicago, mm. who would be a rapper from Chance. Chicago? Huh? Oh, Ch Chance. Okay. Oh, that was quick. Okay, okay. okay. It was quick. I'd say Chance. Uh, but I guess if I take two seconds, so that's the knee jerk, but it'd be between Chance and Lupe. I grew up on Lupe. Okay. And still to this day, without provocation, just start rapping his stuff. I mean, just because that stuff. First and 15th, his mixtapes, 
even before his record is just so insightful, so impactful. And I'm thankful he's still in the game too. Okay. Well, Julian, that was amazing. I must say, <laughs> tell the people <laughs> the contact, how to reach you, where to find your music, etc. Yeah. Thank y'all so much for listening. This is Julian Davis Reed. You can find me on socials at that Julian Davis Reed and my record with the band. I have several out the Juju exchange. You can find us on all streaming platforms, three different words, the Juju exchange. And also I have a solo record out called rest assured. That's a solo piano record. Hope that also can hit the airways for you. Thank you so much for listening. No, thanks for joining us, man. And everyone, this is the end of from Impov Exchange. Thank you. Have a good one. Take care. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange. <laughs>